The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking at seeds, their variety, how they work, and what we still don't know about them. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Dr. Tor Hansen, a Guggenheim Fellow, a Switzer Environmental Fellow, and an award-winning author and biologist. His books include The Impenetrable Forest, Gorilla Years in Uganda, and Feathers, The Evolution of a Natural Miracle, and the illustrated children's book, Bartholomew Quill, A Crow's Quest to Know Who's Who. He's here with me today to talk about his recent book, The Triumph of Seeds, How Grains, Nuts, Kernels, Pulses, and Pips Conquered the Plant Kingdom and Shaped Human History. Tor, welcome to Science for the People. Rochelle, thank you for having me on. So this is one of those books where you read the title and you think, really, how much interesting stuff is there to say about seeds? And anytime I think that, I make sure to pick it up because almost always the answer is a whole lot. Right. Yeah, well, I'm just fascinated by natural objects that, you know, cross the, the barrier that we erect between the human world and the natural world. And seeds do that so beautifully. We see them all day long. We eat them. We wear them. We're surrounded by them, but we never stop to think about them. If we do, however, pause and take the time to investigate, we learn that these little wonders are uh, just great storytellers. They are touchstones to the natural world, telling us all about biology and evolution uh, and our connection to it. So is there actually a technical, formal definition of a seed? So a botanist would call a seed a baby plant in a box with its lunch. And I think that is the best definition I've ever heard because it captures so much of what a seed really is. You know, it is the baby plant. It is the, the embryo of the plant surrounded by um, a seed coat that has protective value and then also typically supplied with some kind of nutrition, some kind of stored energy that will fuel the germination and initial growth of the plant. So that's a really charming definition, but if we were all serious scientists in this room right now, is there a definition that we use in that setting? It's really basically the same thing. The, the plant embryo and you know surrounding tissues that, that achieve those purposes. So I I think in this case the uh, the, the sort of charming definition uh, works very very well. So what do all seeds have in common? I mean, is there a minimum set of requirements for what makes up a seed? Yeah. So if you um, take a seed apart, you're going to get uh, right down to brass tacks, and you've got to have the uh, plant embryo there with some kind of surrounding tissue. Now, when you get beyond that, there are a huge variety of ways to put this thing together. So you have some seeds that you know look like a peanut and have these very large and obvious seed leaves, the cotyledons uh, located within, and those are where the uh, the uh, uh, plant's energy, the baby plant's energy is stored. But you also have something perhaps uh, like an orchid seed, which really has no nutrition at all. So so long as you have the 
baby plant inside, the embryo there, surrounded in a way that's meant to be dispersed. You're talking uh, about a seed. I, As I was reading the book, I kept having to remind myself that things are seeds that I don't normally think of as seeds, like, uh, like nuts and beans and uh, coconuts. That's definitely one that I always forget is technically a seed. Right. Yeah, we tend to think of seeds as, you know, these little packets we get if we might be planting a flower garden or a vegetable garden or something. But but really, um, the seeds that surround us all day are things we we hardly ever stop to think about. I mean, when you pour yourself a cup of coffee in the morning, you are enjoying a a water that's been filtered through the ground-up seeds of of an African tree. And when you uh, put on your uh, bathrobe and go to take a shower, uh, the cotton in the in the bathrobe and and the cotton in the in the towel uh, are the elongated seed coats of a plant in the mallow family. So seeds take all sorts of shapes uh, to achieve the um, purposes that the plant has set them to, and because of that great variety, both in what seeds do and how they do it, uh, you have all of these different uh, shapes and sizes that give us everything from food to uh, stimulants and pharmaceuticals. Seeds are just um, they're one of those things in nature that just seems still, even when you know some of the science, and it still seems kind of magical. I mean, how can something so small become something so uh, massive, something like a, a sequoia tree? Yeah, and what's wonderful about it, too, is that they retain an aura of mystery even within scientific circles. You know, some of the basic seed functions like germination and dormancy uh, still are mysterious. People still don't understand exactly how these processes work. You know, we know what happens in some cases, but not how. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, for me as a a writer, I, I, I turn on my computer and, and, and use it as a word processor, and I know what happens there, but I don't know how it works. Similarly, with seeds, when they go uh, dormant and then spring into ger- into germination, come out of dormancy, um, you know, as scientists, we can see what is happening in many cases, but we still don't know exactly how and what triggers it. And the variety of strategies for lying dormant and coming out of dormancy uh, are just absolutely remarkable. So how much do we actually know about how seeds work? Is it all mystery or have we managed to tease apart some of what's going on there? Oh, certainly a great deal has been learned, but I think the most common refrain that you hear in in studying seed scientists, oh, got all the things that we still don't know. There's still so many wonderful questions. So let's just um, get into the the idea of dormancy, uh, which is one of these sort of mysterious seed qualities. Uh, you know, this is the, uh, the 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 idea that a seed can uh, endure in the soil for you know we know that it can endure for weeks or months uh, and sometimes years, sometimes decades, even longer. The record-breaking seed right now that we know of was two thousand years, a, a date palm seed that that germinated naturally uh, with just a little bit of help from. Uh, uh, a greenhouse staff after 2,000 years. So just what's going on there? Well, if you look inside a dormant seed, um, you see no metabolic activity, which is sort of remarkable. The director of the National Seed Bank in the United States in Fort Collins, Colorado, told me that, you know, dormant seeds, truly dormant seeds, have no measurable metabolic activity. 
And I looked at her and I said, well, you know what? In, in biology, we have a word for that situation and we call that dead. <laughs> um, and she said to me, you know, well, if we know of things that are clearly alive but that aren't metabolizing, then maybe we need to change our definition of what it means to be alive. So a dormant seed um, is one of the, the, the key things that's going on is it's, the cells are very dehydrated. You can lose 80, 90, in some cases, even 95% of the water uh, inside the cell is gone. If you do that to a normal sort of cell that you would find, say, in your own body or most cells out there, uh, when you put the water back in, it's just a mess. It's dead. You've killed it by taking all of the moisture out. But somehow with seed cells, they can be totally dried out. When the water goes back in, there is a memory of both form where everything goes and function, what it's supposed to do. And the best guess right now of how that is achieved is that in the desiccation process, a what they call a bioglass is formed. It is uh, a sugar, basically, that uh, is left behind in there that keeps everything relative. Uh, all the organelles are, are kept in position so that when you add water back into that, when the seed then germinates and floods that cell with water, Everything knows where it's supposed to be. It's all in the right spot, and it all starts to work again. Um, and the idea then of a bioglass is one that it's not just botanists and seed scientists looking into it. They've borrowed that idea now from seeds, uh, taking a, a sugar called myoinsetol from uh, the inside of rice grains, and used that to produce the world's first dry vaccines. Uh, freezing, uh, freeze drying in a sense, uh, live vaccines in uh, a bioglass state uh, so that the vaccine then doesn't have to be refrigerated when you're out doing vaccinations in rural places. So that is just the tip of the iceberg with what's going on in studying seed dormancy. Many things known, but many things still mysterious. Is there a, a theoretical limit to how long a seed could remain dormant and still be able to germinate? So if you think about, you know, what's going on, say, with uh, the medicine in your medicine cabinet, if you look at any of those uh, packets or bottles there, they all have an expiration date on them. And they do that because the, there's just natural, you know, degradation, chemical degradation going on inside. And eventually those pills reach a state where they no longer function or don't function well enough that they will achieve what they were meant to achieve. So that's what's going on really inside a dormant seed as well. Things are breaking down slowly over time. Some seeds break down more quickly than others. But eventually they all will break down and cease to function. So if you are storing seeds, say in a seed bank or someplace where you're trying to keep them going for a long time, you have to keep germinating them now and then to see uh, how they're doing and you know see how many are still uh, germinating. So for folks running a seed bank, uh, they try to do this every uh, you know seven years, every ten years or so, uh, just to make sure that they're storing live seed there, if they've started to dwindle below a certain germination point, then they need to send those seeds out and germinate them, grow them up to uh, mature plants, harvest a new batch of seeds for the seed bank. So depending on the seed, you know, some seeds hardly go dormant at all and can't be stored long at all. Um, some can last for decades. Uh, some can last the record holder again as a date 
content that uh, was still viable after 2,000 years. So that, of course, is a great outlier, but it shows you the potential of what a seed can do given the right conditions of dry uh, and dark. Uh, uh, that one in, was was uh, in a desert setting, so it was a, a dark, buried in the in the desert sands in the rubble of an old fortress. So a marvelous story. So there's definitely features of how the seed is stored or where it lands that can allow it to lay dormant and then still germinate uh, after a really long dormancy. But is there are there particular features of a seed itself that sort of imply or will allow it to last longer in a dormant state? So the the key or one of the keys for you know dormancy is how desiccated does the seed get? You know, and how much water is out of there? Um, if you think of something like an avocado pit. Uh, there's a seed for it. It's massive, and it's very moist. I mean, split one open, and it and it's it's a very dense, moist uh, uh, seed. There never gets dry, and doesn't go dormant really hardly at all. So it takes a little while for it to germinate, but it's not truly a you know a dry dormant seed. So you compare that then to something else in your kitchen, for example, uh, mustard seed out of the spice cabinet there. A tiny, you know, a small, hard, very dry seed. If you crack that thing open, it's quite dry. And those can last in the soil for decades. Um, so part of it has to do with how dry the seed is. And all of that really traces back to the environmental setting where that plant evolved and what the strategy is for the plant to, uh, to, to get its offspring started at the right moment. We're used to the idea of seeds dispersing through space, say, you know, tucked inside of a tasty apple or some other fruit that an animal will eat and then disperse the seeds across the landscape. That's a familiar idea, but but dormancy really uh, is a way for plants to disperse their offspring through time because, of course, not every moment is the right moment for a seed to germinate. The you know a most obvious example of this would be in uh, you know northern climates where you have a very harsh winter. For many plants, uh, they disperse their seeds in the fall. Well, uh, some plants can germinate and survive under the snowpack, but a lot of them can't can't uh, handle the cold in their first months. So the ideal time then for them to germinate is after the cold in the spring when things are warming up and the baby plant will get started and have uh, you know a full uh, summer growing season and, and into the fall before it has to face that hard cold weather. So many of those seeds then um, have to go through a cold snap before they will germinate. You could take uh, one of those dormant seeds and and plant it in the best soil and, and pray to the full moon, put all this fertilizer on it and get nothing until that seed had, had gone through a cold snap to break its dormancy, which is, you know, in terms of its evolution, what was required to get it to the right point in time for it to germinate. And there are many examples of that, really elaborate examples of what it takes to get a seed to germinate at the right moment. Things that must be exposed to fire or uh, even wood smoke, things like that in fire-prone settings where the ideal time for a young plant to grow, of course, is after a fire when you know the real estate is wide open and there's a flush of nutrients 
so a whole variety of examples on how to break dormancy. I think this is one of uh, the things about seeds and how they work that I find most fascinating is what is the, do we have any idea what the mechanism is behind these, these triggers that trigger a seed out of dormancy? Because like you say, some of them are really, really specific. Yeah. And again, there's, that's, Part of the mystery is, you know, we can see what happens. In some cases, know what it takes. What do you have to do to a seed to get it to germinate? Okay, it has to go through this cold snap. But it's still not fully understood exactly how the seeds um, are responding. I mean, it's clear what is happening, but not exactly how. I mean, you can have a seed in the soil under six feet of snow and somehow, through the changes in angle and quality of the light, uh, that seed is aware enough of its environment to uh, you know, germinate uh, at the right moment as the snow is melting uh, to be to be ready for the springtime. I mean, there are all these incredible examples of what happens, but how it happens exactly uh, remains in many ways mysterious. What's the fussiest seed that you know of, the one that has the longest or maybe just the crazy specific set of requirements to germinate? Oh, gosh. You know, I, some of the more remarkable ones are uh, are the fire-prone species where, you know, there is an example of one where germination is greatly enhanced by exposure to wood smoke. So the, the chemical signature of wood smoke is uh, a part of breaking dormancy for certain seeds. Um, but there are all you know, sorts of really interesting examples where it may not be a requirement, but it greatly enhances germination uh, if you examine the ecological setting of a seed. And one of my favorites, because it's just a cool story, has to do with uh, the fruit of a tree called the marula, which is in, in southern Africa. And this is a tree where the fruits are, are eaten by elephants. And they have a big, massive, woody seed in there. It's just hard as nails. And the elephants, you know, chew on that fruit and with their massive molars, you know, they chew the fruit off and they eat the thing whole and, and the, the seed passes through them. But in the chewing process, they don't actually crush the seed. It's that hard. It doesn't get crushed, but it gets um, wobbled around enough so that a, a tiny little plug, a wooden plug uh, in the seed gets loosened so that when they pass through the elephant and out in uh, the dung there, they've been dispersed, but also this key thing has happened to that you know hard uh, seed coat, essentially, uh, loosening this wooden plug so that water can get in and cause the seed to germinate. So the, the, the chewing process of an elephant greatly enhances the germination of the marula seed. That's a fantastic story that I, I did not know. And it, it really, I think, um, shows and illustrates how much seeds are kind of still magical. <laughs> Indeed. Well, and that's part of it, too, that just, you know, it keeps uh, all of these people who work with seeds fascinated and inspired is that, the, you know, these wonderful stories, great 
ecological situations, uh, and then some still some real mysteries about some of these basic functions. So after germination, uh, when a, a young plant is growing, I, there's this point where a plant kind of first pokes up out of the soil when it seems to grow really, really quickly. And you kind of feel like if you just watch it long enough, you'd actually be able to see it move, almost like watching the hour hand on a clock. Um, do plants actually grow fast during this really early phase of life, or is it mostly an illusion because it's still really small? Oh, what a great question. Uh, so one of the things that's going on uh, when a seed germinates, it is sort of remarkably, thing. my God, how can this possibly be growing so fast, particularly in many cases, the first roots that come out. Um, in, in a lot of situations, it is the roots that are the first things to grow, and they just grow incredibly quickly, that first root shooting out of a seed. And what is happening is that the seed is is sort of prepackaged in many cases, ready to grow. A lot of the cells are already there. We were talking earlier about uh, desiccation for dormancy. So you can imagine uh, the embryonic root, uh, the radical, uh, they call it uh, in botanical terms, stuffed inside this little seed. And the cells are all there for quite a long root. Um, but they're empty of water. So what happens when a seed germinates, it's a wonderful uh, descriptive process. The first thing that goes on is the seed imbibes. Uh, it drinks up, it sucks up all of this water. And you can see this uh, if you're measuring the weight of seeds uh, during the germination process. All of a sudden they get heavy. It's because they've taken on a whole bunch of water. And they start flooding these cells. So the cells are already there and it's a relatively uh, fast process to just flood them with water and make them big again. Uh, you can, or make them big, uh, so, th so that growth comes from water flooding pre-made cells. So later in the plant's life, it has to, you know, to be making new cells and then, you know, expanding those. But that initial spurt of growth, a lot of those cells are already already ready to go. They were packed into the seed from the beginning and they're just flooded with water, like like filling up a bunch of water balloons. That makes me feel so much better that it's not just me wanting to think it's growing really fast, but in some small way it kind of is. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, a, a fun way to think about it, too, is if you, you know, have a whole package of balloons uh, in your hand, you can hold, you know, 20, 30 balloons very easily, fill them all with water, and they take up a huge amount of space. You could never hold all of those. So that's what's going on, really, uh, with those, um, uh, you know, embryonic uh, cells there within the seed. They're, they're empty of water. Just flood them, and they suddenly become huge. I'm curious, when did seeds first evolve? Do we know that? Ah, the evolution of seeds. Oh, it's marvelous stuff. Yeah. So we you know, start getting the first seeds at the end of the Devonian, the beginning of the Carboniferous. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of years ago. And we know that seeds evolved from spores. They evolved from the spore plants because the flora that dominated uh, the planet really before seeds conquered them or triumphed over them, as we say, uh, were the spore plants. So great forests of you know, horsetails and ferns and club mosses and spike mosses that reproduce in a different way. You know this if you've gone out and, and found a, a fern that's uh, re releasing spores, you shake the fern and it just comes out like a brown cloud of smoke, this fine, fine dust. Each one of those tiny little spores on a fern is actually quite different from a seed. Those fern spores um, bear, you know, the same genetic 
material as that parent fern. They go off into the soil, and if they find the right spot, the right bit of moisture and whatnot, those spores grow into a separate generation for a fern. It's a plant we're not even familiar with, but the ferns have a separate generation called the gametophyte, which is a tiny little green nub about the size of your thumbnail, and it's down there in the uh, the soil, and you would hardly ever notice one of these things, but it is that separate generation then that produces eggs and sperm that unite the sperm, swim through uh, the moisture in the soil, find an egg, and that grows then into the fern plant that we are familiar with. So it's a completely separate generation, uh, and uh, what began to happen that led to seeds was um, instead of uh, having one type of spore that goes out and makes this separate plant, uh, a certain lineage of the spore plants, and this has evolved several times. There are modern spore plants now that do this too. It's sort of the first step towards a seed, and that is separating the male from the female. So female spores and male spores, and the female spores tend to be large, and they are the ones that then will make the egg. The male spores tend to be small, and they are the ones that will uh, make uh, the sperm. So once you've done that, once you've separated male from female, you can sort of imagine then a plant, rather than dispersing those big, fat female spores, just holding on to them. And this quirk happened, and that lineage of plants then developed into the seed plants. By holding on to that female uh, spore, that is the you know what would then become the seed, whereas the male... Uh, spores evolved into pollen, still dispersing through the air in, in, in these tiny little packages. But by holding on to the uh, the female generation right there on on the parent plant, um, that led to, to the evolution of seeds. So, did all plants with seeds evolve from like a single source, or is there some kind of convergent evolution happening in this history? In this case, we we believe that it, it's a single lineage for the evolution of seeds, though you can see that first step, that separation of male and female spores has happened many times. And so even now in the modern family uh, of uh, the uh, spike mosses, uh, you will see female spores and male spores, a separate evolution of that first sort of step towards a seed. Again, in some of the water ferns, you see uh, big fat female spores and, and tiny male spores. So that step seems to have happened many times, but to get all your ducks in a row, all the evolutionary novelties to make a seed uh, appears to have only happened once. So from an evolutionary standpoint, when all of this was, was starting to happen and seeds were starting to emerge, what was the benefit of the seed and why did it kind of take over and kind of try over the idea of a spore. Oh, this is such good stuff. Okay, so you may remember from you know some uh, textbook of, of uh, the Earth's history and paleontology or something of that nature, learning that the Carboniferous era was this big era of swampiness, and we know this because what uh, we have dominating our fossil record of the Carboniferous are the remains of big swamps in the form of coal. Uh, all, all of this 
you know, decompose uh, plant matter, the uh, uh, the big coal forests of the Carboniferous. But that really only took up a part of the landscape. There was a huge part of the landscape that wasn't wet. So what was happening in those dry areas? Hmm, very interesting. Well, it turns out that the more we learn about the dry areas, uh, it seems like that is where the uh, seed plants were getting established and dominating much earlier than people thought. The reason we didn't know about it sooner is because dry places don't make fossils very well. And so the those early, many of those early seed plants are not very well represented in the fossil record of the Carboniferous. But if you can find places where something washed from the uplands down into one of these coal forests and was preserved, it's almost always something uh, seed-bearing, some coniferous thing. Um, so... The, one of the great advantages appears to have been the ability to colonize dry areas. If you imagine the um, reproductive strategy we're just discussing with spore plants, with using a fern as an example, that little fern gametophyte has to be someplace moist. So that you have to have a, a real moist place at some point during uh, you know that life cycle because you've got to get the the sperm swimming through moist soil to find the eggs to make a new fern. So this is a great uh, strategy if you're living in a swamp, but it's a, a much harder thing to pull off if you're in a dry climate or up on a mountainside someplace where you may not um, have the right conditions. Uh, for that step to happen. So if you're a seed plant that um, doesn't necessarily have to have that step, it gives you a, a great deal more flexibility. So it appears to be in part the the um, colonization and dominance of dry habitats is where seeds had a real advantage. And then later when the climate dried as you're coming out of the Carboniferous era, um, when it really dried and a lot of those swamp uh, areas um, transitioned to a new habitat, um, the, the seed plants were surrounding them. They were ready to colonize that area as well. We'll be back in just a minute with more Science for the People. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. So we talked a little bit about how seeds evolved in the first place, but I also want to talk a little bit about different types of seeds and how they evolve their different types of strategies, because this is one of the, the most interesting things about seeds is all of the different ways that they've kind of manage to keep going and manage to uh to to disperse themselves. So maybe let's start with with fruit. I mean, is fruit part of the seed or is it just a really tasty lure? <laughs> oh, it's a great question. What came first, the fruit or the seed? Well, it's the seed that came first. The fruit is just window dressing for the seed within. If you consider any of the fleshy fruits that we are familiar with that we eat, whether you're talking about an apple or a strawberry or a, uh, uh, 
you know, a custard apple or a blueberry, anything you can think of, all of that sweet, fleshy stuff was designed to lure, to tempt an animal into eating that fruit and transporting seeds from place to place. So that idea of dispersal is, is a, is a, one of the critical parts about seeds that, uh, you know, really sets them apart. You can boil it down really to five key inventions that, um, you know, evolutionary inventions that make seeds so successful. And one of them is that they're built to disperse, to travel uh, from place to place. Um, they're also built, as we were talking about, to endure. They're built to go dormant, many of them, uh, in the soil for years or decades even. Um, they combine the parental DNA of the plant through pollination, uh, which is a process that uh, mixes genes regularly, that in, in many ways it may perhaps speed the evolutionary potential of those plants by, by gene mixing. Um, uh, but it's also a process that we can manipulate. So that's, you know, a part of why seeds are so useful to us and why we can, we can breed seed plants to make the grains and nuts and fruits that we like to eat. Uh, you can't really do that with a spore plant. You can't predictably change its features because that spore reproductive system uh, is too different. Um, the other two things then that are so important about seeds are one, that nutrition that is inside almost all seeds, you know, to fuel the baby plant, uh, you know, because that's there, uh, we can use it then to fuel ourselves. Um, and because it's there, the final thing that makes the seed so unique is the defense of the seed. So seeds defend, uh, uh, the, the baby plant and the nutrition within using a whole array of things, whether it's a big, thick shell like on the marula nut we were talking about that the elephants chew, or whether it is caffeine that is a defense mechanism uh, to drive off various insects and, and fungi, or whether it is, uh, you know, a, a sharp spiky thing i mean all of these various defenses from chemicals to physical defenses another key aspect of seeds all of those things make seeds successful in nature but they're also the reasons of course that they're so indispensable to us one of my fa personal favorite seed defenses uh that doesn't work on me is the chili peppers because i really quite enjoy spicy food so uh, can you tell us a little bit about why a, why a seed would stash itself in a casing that's spicy yeah, the chili pepper story is really a wonderful one. This is something that I've described in some detail in the book because it's a great story and also just a really great example of, you know, how science works. I mean, someone started with a, a simple question that led to more questions and more questions and took years for this whole research group to figure out the story of, of chili peppers. And there are still some things to learn, but what we know to date is really a, a tremendous story. So if you bite into, you know, a chili pepper, of course, you get that burning sensation. And what's going on there is the capsaicin, which is an alkaloid that is produced uh, in that pepper, um, is tricking our nervous system uh, to tell you that um, uh, your mouth is on fire, essentially. To tell, it tells, it triggers the exact same thing, really, that um, uh, taking a sip of something too hot triggers. 
the, the body says, ah, it's too hot, it triggers this uh, burning sensation that you feel. But actually, in, in fact, nothing is being burned. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a deception. So there's no damage taking place to your cells there, even though you feel uh, horrible, it's uh, something that passes. It's not uh, the same as uh, eating fire. Um, so at any rate, that's what's going on there. And it is something that is specifically keyed into to drive off mammals. It works on the mammal uh, nervous system. And that is because one of the things that would eat a wild chili pepper uh, would be a small rodent. And when rodents come up to eat those peppers, they chew them up and they chew up the seeds within and they destroy them, right? They destroy a seed. When a rodent eats a seed, it just chews it up and, it, and the seed is is destroyed. Um, so the plant then has evolved a defense mechanism that drives away rodents. And you can even see this in where the capsaicin is located within the chili pepper. It's concentrated part of at, up at the tip. So the first place a rodent might start to chew, there's a lot of capsaicin there. And then as you get down into the uh, fruit itself, that white stuff that surrounds the seeds is full of capsaicin as well. There's a high concentration there protecting those valuable seeds. And then even within the seeds themselves, some capsaicin uh, is located there as well. So again, stopping mammals from chewing up your seeds and destroying them. But it doesn't work on birds. And this is what makes the story so marvelous um, in, in that uh, a bird uh, can eat chili peppers and feel no burn whatsoever because that capsaicin has no effect on the way they feel. It doesn't work on their nervous system. And so birds can eat a chili pepper whenever they want to with no repercussions. And how do birds eat one of these things? They eat them whole. And in fact, the seeds pass through the bird without being chewed up, without being damaged. And in some ways, in some cases at least, um, their germination is even enhanced by going through that digestive tract. So it's a beautiful story and that you see uh, the, the plants driving off the seed predator that would destroy the seed and allowing dispersal by the birds that do not harm the seeds and in fact may enhance their germination. Evolution so is, is so clever. <laughs> it's extremely clever and, and there's even more to the story and that it turns out that perhaps one of the earliest reasons for developing capsaicin um, was to drive off uh, fungal infections. And so there's a great amount of work now that has gone into working out how that what appears to be the first step in the evolution of capsaicin was as a uh, an antifungal and you know mechanism, and you can see this in pe in wild peppers down in in Bolivia and places where, in the wetter environment, um, you know where fungi are prevalent. There's a lot of capsaicin out in the drier areas. Um, hardly any capsaicin at all. You can eat the chili pepper without any burn. One of uh, my favorite parts of uh, your book where we're talking about dispersal is you pulled apart a, a cotton ball or a, a cotton plant. And that was really fascinating because I, I honestly didn't know really much about uh, the cotton. And I remember reading that section. I was constantly looking up photos uh, on Google to try and, and get a much clearer picture of what you were talking about. So can you maybe walk us through kind of the 
not the dissection, but what is, what, what's in that cotton and what its strategy is for dispersing? Yeah, well, the cotton story is wonderful. I mean, I'm wearing a cotton t-shirt right now and, and looking down at this, you know, beautiful fabric. It's hard to even conceive of this as being part of a seed, but it is. It's, uh, the seed coat of a plant in, in the mallow family. And there are approximately six miles of cotton yarn in the average t-shirt. So it's uh, pretty incredible stuff. So what has evolved here for cotton is, um, situation where the seed coat, the individual cells have elongated to an extreme degree. I mean, they're, they're one cell thick, these long, beautiful, silky-looking strands um, coming out from, uh, from the seed itself and serving a couple of purposes. You know, you know, the first thing one thinks of when you see these cotton balls is like, my gosh, you know, of course they, they disperse well through the air. This allows all this surface area of these strands, these long, long fibrous strands allow it to drift through the air. And that's true. You can, you know, blow on a, a tuft of cotton with the seed within and it will drift, you know, in the wind. I've tried this and it's gone, you know, many meters before falling uh, to the ground. But it also turns out that it, that it is a great way to disperse through water in that those uh, long, long cells that all that surface area um, trap air and give the seed buoyancy and, and appear to, you know, keep the water from uh, the salt water from affecting the seed itself. And we know this because many of the most uh, uh, fluffy cotton, wild cottons, and there are, you know, a couple of dozen or more uh, uh, wild cotton species scattered around the globe. Uh, many of the, the most fluffy versions all occur near coastlines. And then you can see how the cotton has dispersed across oceans uh, many times. And not, you know, on on wind because you couldn't possibly uh, transport a cotton seed for thousands of miles across the Atlantic, um, but you could do it on ocean currents. And uh, so we know then that cotton has dispersed across oceans uh, in, in part because of this wonderful fluff surrounding, uh, floating and protecting uh, those seeds within. So you have cotton that has come from Africa to North America, uh, South America on more than one occasion. You have cotton that has gotten from South America then to the Galapagos. There's Darwin's cotton there. You have a cotton, even a native cotton to uh, on the Hawaiian Islands that is crossed out to that most isolated of archipelagos. So a very efficient dispersal mechanism for those seeds, not only only through short distances through the air, but long distances on ocean currents. Okay, so seeds have great strategies for dispersing and great strategies for uh, wading through bouts of cold, through making it through fires, for finding those great moments to to germinate. But they're also really tasty. Um, <laughs> I was struck several times reading your book about 
just thinking about how much of our diet is made up of seeds of one type or another in ways that I don't generally think about. Um, one of my favorite sections was where you're dissecting an Almond Joy bar and you kind of go through all of the different seeds that went into creating this, this chocolate bar. And that was really interesting because walking through that process, I, there's a lot of stuff I either forgot was a seed or probably didn't even know was a seed. And it was really interesting. Yeah, well, and, and part of what's going on there, uh, the reason we have so many different delicious seeds, and I should also point out there are plenty of seeds in the world that are not delicious at all. We have, you know, uh, uh, hundreds that we eat, but there are hundreds of thousands of seeds that we don't eat. Um, but there are a lot of different seeds that we eat that provide very different flavors and very different sorts of nutrition because there are so many different ways for a seed to store energy, to store food uh, for the embryonic plant, right? There are lots of ways you can do that. You can store it as a starch, which is, you know, basically a a sugar. Uh, And that's what we have from grains, you know, uh, the uh, seeds more or less. It's it's, uh, actually the entire fruit of the grass plant has, has really been turned into a seed-like uh, function. So those grains, most of those, they store the uh, energy for uh, the, the baby plant as a starch with maybe a little bit of protein as well. So you can have a high starch seed that, that is uh, tasty like rice, or you can have a high protein seed where most of, of the energy is stored as a protein, and there you find things like peanuts or almonds. Um, you can have that uh, energy stored as an oil. You can have a lot of oily stuff in a seed, like uh, mustard oils, for example. Uh, canola oil that uh, we use is from the mustard seeds. Um, you can have it as a as a wax. Jojoba seeds have a a, a wax um, a, a for, form of energy within them. So there are all these different ways to store energy, and because of that, uh, there are all sorts of different nutritional and and flavor values uh, in a sense for, that we get from seeds. So how long have humans been eating seeds? Ah, well, uh, quite a long time. Much to the uh, uh, chagrin, I, I think, of people on the paleo diet. Um, seeds in many different forms, including grains, have been a part of our diet for uh, since before we were Homo sapiens. If you go back to the earliest uh, example that we have in the paleontological record of the use of fire, or one of the earliest uh, from a site in Israel, you know, 790,000 years ago, one of the things in that fire pit, uh, you, you find charred barley, uh, there in the, in, in, in and around the fire. So, um, we've been eating seeds then for a very long time. Um, there are many examples from the paleontological record. Uh, of these things being part of a diet, and it makes sense. It makes sense because they are so common in our environment and so nutritious, you know, whether it's nuts, whether it's grains, uh, all these various seeds. Uh, you know, there are examples of even Australopithecines um, eating a lot of grasses and, and sedges and things like that, where they're, from the teeth where you have on these fossils, you can tell that these, these very primitive uh, uh, 
primate uh, ancestors of ours, or relatives at least, were eating you know a lot of vegetation. Well, it's it's impossible to imagine them you know making a living eating the, you know the roots of grasses and then ignoring these. Uh, you know, much more nutritious seeds that would appear uh, at, during part of the year. So certainly seeds have been a part of our diet for a long, long time. And certainly since the advent of farming, they've made up a huge portion of our diet. And I think it really, especially since we get into when we get into the history of agriculture, um, the evolution of seeds and the evolution of people is really kind of tightly intertwined. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have this idea of, uh, you know, the agricultural revolution and that, uh, you know, we switched quickly from, you know, hunting and gathering to, to agriculture just on a dime. But um, what's really interesting is if you examine one site where, uh, you know, they have a, a clear transition preserved in, you know, the uh, paleontological record, um it took hundreds of years, it took a thousand years or more to go from a purely hunter-gatherer situation to uh, a farming village, essentially. So, and, and you see over that period of time a winnowing of the wild plants that were uh, eaten by the people living in, in that area. You know, went from hundreds of species down to the few that could be successfully, um, could be successfully uh, farmed uh, on you know a, a scale that would allow people to live uh, permanently at that site. So w- one of the things they look for when they're trying to see where that transition took place um, in the you know the record, if they're digging through these sites, is they examine seeds and they look for changes in seed size because immediately you you see um, whatever the seeds that people were eating if they were gathering you know a wild grain for example um, well here it is it's in the diet for a long time it's at the site it's at the site and then suddenly the seeds uh, get bigger and what you see happening there is the beginning of selection people start selecting um, uh, the larger seeds to eat they start planting seeds they start selecting the largest seeds to to uh, plant for the next year, and this very close relationship begins with that plant from the very first uh, transition out of the wild and into domestication. We start to change those plants by selecting the best um, ones to plant for the next year, and people continue to do this in backyard gardens. We do it all the time. If you're growing something for seed, you take the most vigorous, take seed from the most vigorous plant to save for the next year or the sweetest tomato or whatever it may happen to be. We continue to, you know, co-evolve in a sense with seeds, changing those plants, uh, and uh, you know, making them them suit us in, in a way. So we're almost out of time, but I do want to talk uh, briefly about seed banks because this is something that uh, I don't know that a lot of people realize that we have these banks and vaults that just have that we just store seeds in all around the world. So can you talk a little bit about uh, modern seed banks and seed vaults and why we have them? Yeah, the seed bank movement is you know a very important part of preserving, number one, um, wild seeds uh, that are threatened by whether it's habitat loss or or climate change, you know, having a a reserve of those seeds allows us, you know, then to reestablish potentially populations of wild plants that might disappear. Um, And there's a seed vault at 
at Kew Gardens in uh, the UK that has a lot of of wild seeds. And in fact, they have some, maybe a couple dozen now of species that they believe have gone extinct in the wild, but they still have them alive in the seed vault. But there's also a, another aspect of seed banking that is to preserve our agricultural heritage in that we were talking earlier in in the interview about how natural it has always been for people to select the best plants as they go along, select the seeds to plant for the next year. And in doing so, with our crops in all of these different places around the world where we live uh, and have taken crops with us wherever we go and planted them in new habitats and always been selecting, we've created thousands of varieties and huge genetic diversity of our crop plants uh, over you know the past 10, 12, 14,000 years, depending on the crop. Um, but until the last, you know, 50 or 75 years, when we've switched our farming practices around to rather than uh, grow a, a great variety of crops, growing a single variety or very few varieties of particular crops on a massive scale. And so in doing that, you know, we, we produce a lot of food, but of very limited genetic diversity. And people have begun realizing that that puts us at risk. It puts our agricultural system at risk because we don't have the same resistance to the potential to resist diseases if we're only planting, you know, one type of, uh, of any crop that you can imagine. And so people suddenly realized, my gosh, we're losing all of this heritage and, uh, began to save as many different varieties of seed as could be found as well as whenever they could be located, the wild plants that were originally domesticated and as many types of those so that we have a great diversity um, of you know, genetic information for, uh, for the future for, for breeding crops and putting these things in seed banks. And this whole idea really got underway almost 100 years ago now in, in, uh, in Russia and then uh, has moved around the world so that now we have thousands, more than a thousand seed banks in, in places around the world, and also a very famous new vault up in Svalbard in the Norwegian Arctic, which is, uh, you know, sort of earned the nickname the Doomsday Vault, but it's a backup, really, where seed banks send backup copies of their seeds because it's a very cold, naturally cold place where seeds will store. Even if the power goes out, they'll be good there, many of them at least, for a long, long time. Um, so the seed banking movement is an important part of preserving the, the diversity of crop plants and wild plants, um, but it's not quite so simple as, as just locking things up in a vault. It's actually a very active process, and, and we mentioned earlier that you need to keep testing the viability of seeds that you're storing uh, because eventually they break down, and some of them break down faster than others. So you have to be connected to uh, people who can grow seeds up in a controlled way to to reestablish um, the population of seeds that you're you're keeping there in your vault. So seed banking is a very active process, and it's the seed vault uh, facility where they're storing and testing the seeds, and then whenever something needs to be grown up uh, to harvest a new batch of seeds, they have to be sent out 
to uh, growers, you know, in all sorts of different uh, climates where these various crops need to be grown. Uh, and so it's a very active uh, and, and expensive thing to do, but also very important. So do these seed banks only take agricultural and sort of seeds that we, that grow plants that we eat, or are there seed vaults or banks that are for kind of wild seeds that we don't eat? I'm thinking things like trees and other kinds of plants. Yeah, so it, it is a combination. The, the biggest emphasis has been on agricultural uh, crops. And for example, in the United States, the, the big seed bank is part of the Department of Agriculture. But they also do have wild plants there as well. And the the facility that, that if, if one of them in the world, one of the big ones, specializes on, uh, you know, wild plants, it would be probably the one, the Millennium Seed Vault at Kew Gardens. They have agricultural stuff too, but they've also made a point of collecting uh, rare plants there as well. You mentioned uh, that seed vaults and seed banks kind of got their start in Russia, and that reminded me that there is uh, an interesting story about a seed bank in Russia uh, during Stalin's era. So maybe you want to share that story sort of to see us out? Oh, sure. Yeah. So this brilliant, brilliant scientist, uh, Vavilov was his last name, um, who started really the world's first seed bank. He had the vision that, uh, uh, you know, he understood back in the 20s the importance of saving seed varieties and the importance of saving uh, as much diversity of the crops and then also finding out where in the world these things evolved and going out and gathering wild plants that were their ancestors um, so that you'd have all of these seeds together and be able to breed new varieties um, from this great diversity. Uh, so he established this great uh, seed bank, but then he fell out of favor, uh, fell out of favor uh, in Russia. And uh, one of his competitors who had a very different and, and very wrong idea about how uh, agriculture should proceed uh, uh, was favored by Stalin and Vavilov was eventually imprisoned uh, and sent to uh well people didn't even know but he was he was Im- imprisoned in a, a remote place and the seed bank that he had begun persisted didn't have much funding but they had this wonderful collection and this was during the siege of of Leningrad when people were starving and here was the seed bank full of seeds and the scientists working there were so dedicated to that cause and they believed in it so much that several of them starved to death without eating the collection that they were there to guard. That is definitely some serious dedication. Uh, and it's, it, it just shows you how important some of these seed banks are and, and people that recognized how important they were a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, and Vavilov himself starved or died of, of malnutrition in, in prison. So this brilliant man who was just one of the great minds of the 20th century, although not as well known uh, outside of Russia, um, and who was dedicated to the idea of of food and and food production and eliminating these you know famines that he had seen you know devastate uh, the countryside in Russia time and time again. Uh, by breeding better varieties, uh, ironically, died of malnutrition. Tor, thanks so much for joining me today. It's a really interesting topic and a really interesting book. 
Oh, thanks very much for having me on. I love to talk seeds, and it's been a pleasure. If you want to learn more about Tor Hansen or his books, we've got links to get you started at our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.